Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 94, The Pools of Horus. Today, we pick up where episode 93 left off, with a journey deep into Nubia. We'll cross deserts, visit sacred mountains, and explore mysterious lands. It is a journey beyond the horizon, led by the pharaoh himself. Today's episode is brought to you by Nachiket Karnik and Irene San Pietro. Thank you kindly for your support. May Kanum, who resides in Nubia, and Amun, who is Lord of Napata, bless your travels and your deeds. To everyone, please enjoy the show. The year was 1397 BCE. It was the last days of August, or the start of September, approximately. The Egyptian summer was receding, the Nile flood was beginning to pick up. The waters rose high on the river, and the air was cooled by the breeze. In the middle of Nubia, an army of the pharaoh was at work. It was now the fifth regnal year under the majesty of Neb Ma'adre Amunhotep III, the living Horus, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, and ruler of all he surveyed. Amunhotep was now once again master over Nubia. He had crushed rebellion and asserted his right to rule through the force of arms. With the dust of battle settling down, the pharaoh was resting in his camp and feeling very good indeed. Pharaoh and his army were a long way from home, about 650 kilometers south of Egypt's border. They were settled in camp, cleaning themselves up after battle. Celebrations were probably going on still, plenty of beer going around, and the men were looking forward to returning home, home to their families and communities, home in victory. Unfortunately, the pharaoh had other ideas. Amunhotep was close to the frontiers of Egyptian power. Behind him, Lower Nubia and Egypt were safe zones. Ahead, there were the wilds of central and southern Nubia, the mysterious lands of Kush, of Mu, and of Irem. These were the lands of strange backwards people, by Egyptian views. Lands of desert, rock, and hidden cracks. This horizon was unfamiliar and foreboding. It was, in effect, a challenge. A challenge that the pharaoh would meet. Having won victory in war, Amunhotep might have easily turned around and headed back home. That was the pattern of his predecessors, and no one would have thought twice had he done the same. But this pharaoh was young, bold, and inquisitive, perhaps also a little bit drunk. Rather than go home to a predictable life, Amunhotep conceived a plan to go further, to press his advantage and to take the name of Pharaoh deep into the lands of Nubia. With an army at his back and Egypt secure, the Pharaoh had a fancy to go exploring. What followed was a remarkable mission, a mission to explore strange new lands, to seek out new vistas and cultures, to boldly go where no Pharaoh had gone before.
At the end of August, Amunhotep and his warriors packed up camp, boarded their riverboats, and sailed southward. Their first destination was a village called Napata, and it was the southernmost limit of Egyptian military power. Here, Egyptian strength was light, but with the rebellion crushed, it was once again safe territory. Amunhotep and company sailed towards Napata, stopping periodically to ensure that nearby villages were quiet after the failed rebellion. Soon, they neared the fourth cataract of the Nile, the shallow rapids which dot the river's mighty expanse. Before they encountered these cataracts, though, the Egyptians would have seen a strange sight rising from the desert floor. On the right-hand side of the River Nile, when you're sailing upriver, the land is flat and featureless. But all of a sudden, a mighty rock escarpment appears on the horizon. It is a titanic landmark, a great flat-topped hump of a mountain emerging unexpectedly from the sands. This mountain is huge, a good hundred meters tall, and it dominates its local environment. It is a mountain that we call the Jebel Barkal. The Jebel Barkal was a sacred place. The Egyptians called it Ju Wab, or Pure Mountain. It was an isolated sanctuary of the great god Amun, whom the Egyptians thought lived here some of the time. The mountain is a magnificent spectacle, and the ancients considered it a symbol of divine power, the power to raise mountains where none were before, to conjure a home out of rock and sand, in a land that would seem to be lifeless. The Egyptian fleet arrived at Napata and the Jebel Barkal, and Pharaoh disembarked. Now the town itself was modest and unremarkable, so the king was probably here to visit that mountain. Amunhotep would certainly have gone to the Jebel Barkal, and perhaps made some offerings in the small temple there. That temple had been commissioned by Amunhotep's great-grandfather, King Menkepere Tutmos III. So Amunhotep probably came to worship Amun and his august ancestor. After all, both of them were now in heaven as living gods, so who better to worship for protection? With the worship and offerings complete, Amunhotep could turn to his real business. His fleet and soldiers were gathered, and with a few more provisions and everyone psyching themselves up, they could begin their real journey. But although they had a fleet, they were not taking the river. Instead, Amunhotep and his army were going to march into the Nubian desert. The king and his warriors anchored their river ships at Napata. Leaving a strong guard to protect them, they prepared themselves to leave the river Nile and make a trek across the sands. The pharaoh had a specific destination in mind, and this journey would take him and his men deep into the area which we call the Bayuda Desert. The Bayuda Desert emerges from the eastern Sahara and butts up against the Nile. The whole area is a sort of massive crescent shape. It is dominated by sand, volcanic rock, and white quartz stones. The name Bayuda derives from Arabic Abyoda, the masculine singular word for white. It is not hard to see why the desert is called that. In the full sunlight, Bayuda is vast, bright, and pitiless, with only the occasional scrub or acacia tree to lighten the burden. 
It is a punishing land for the unprepared. Only Bedouin tribes call it home. Amunhotep and company set off into the Bayuda early in September. Not the hottest time of the year, but certainly not the coolest. If they were wise, they would limit their travelling to the early morning and the late evening. If they were not, they made the journey in full daylight, when the heat beats down and shade or respite is rare. Either way, it was a tough journey. The army set out, perhaps following the paths made by ancient riverbeds. These wadis lead up into the hills of Bayuda, which are large volcanic formations crisscrossing the area, a natural barrier to the eastern Sahara. In this area, scrub bushes would provide some grazing for the pack animals, and perhaps the occasional tree gave some shade to the king or his companions. In the event of a rainstorm, unlikely but possible, the wadis would become watered again, and the army might have some extra rations of hydration. Egyptian soldiers travelled light. Donkeys carried food and water, contained in skins or gourds. The soldiers wore headcloths in the sun, and trudged along, either barefoot or in sandals. The wealthy and powerful, of course, rode in chariots, with proper covering from the heat. But no matter who you were, Bayuda was a tough journey. The route was long and hard. For more than 150 kilometres, or 95 miles, the warriors trudged along rocky paths, hot sands, and craggy hills. The Bayuda is not all sand dunes, there is a rich variety of terrain. Unfortunately, that also made it hard to prepare for. The warriors were constantly spraining ankles, or massaging swollen feet, and always the heat was immense. The first march probably took about 7 to 10 days, allowing for a moderate pace with the aid of donkeys. Maybe it was a bit faster, but with the terrain throwing up complications like sandstorms or barriers, we should estimate about 15 to 20 kilometres a day. Not quite Roman army speeds, but then these weren't Roman roads. This was desert country. The Egyptians pushed on as best as they could. Amunhotep was not marching into the desert aimlessly. He did have a destination in mind. That destination was a mysterious location, somewhere in the heart of the Bayuda. It was called the Pools of Horus. The Pools of Horus, or Kebu Heru, are a mysterious place, almost mythological. No one is sure what they are exactly, but the most likely candidate is a place about 150 kilometers southeast of Napata, at the end of a long mountainous stretch. This spot was visited by many 19th century explorers. It is called the Jakdul Wells, and it is our best bet for the location of the Pools of Horus. Assuming this identification is correct, the Pools of Horus which Amunhotep visited might have looked something like this. Amunhotep and his warriors arrived at a large, rocky ridge in the middle of the Bayuda Desert. But at one end of the ridge, the cliffs and crags suddenly open up. Deep crevices plunge down below the ground, and these crevices are filled with cool, sweet groundwater. In some spots, the ground slopes down to this water, forming pools where men and donkeys could water, or even splash about. In the middle of the burning desert, these pools are a blessed relief. In the 1800s, an army of the British Empire came through this region. 
It was tired, it was thirsty, and it was ready for a rest. According to commentators who accompanied the army, the experience of Jack Duel was absolutely wonderful. Quote, it took close to three days to reach the Jukdul wells, and during all that time the camels were not watered, the supply at intermediate wells was barely sufficient for the men. But when they got to Jukdul, there was an abundance of the life-restoring element, water, for all, for the place was as wild and romantic as you can imagine, the wells being hidden away in deep caverns with precipitous sides in the midst of frowning and rugged rocks. End quote. So the Jakdul wells are deep crevices filled with water. The temptation to swim must have been huge. Now the Egyptians are a river people, and they were probably decent swimmers. So, borrowing an image from my favourite film of 2017, which was Stephen King's It, I like to imagine a number of kilt-clad Egyptians, mostly youths, leaping from rocks into the deep and blissfully cool waters of Horus. They splash and laugh, they dive, and some of them clamber onto each other's shoulders in order to wrestle and joust. For one glorious afternoon, the warriors of Pharaoh were once again boys, playing in the pools like they did at home. The fact that they were a hundred miles from the Nile meant nothing, for this happy moment. The Jakdul wells remain today, and I have been able to scrounge up a couple of images of them, including both modern and 19th century imagery. They're on the website, and I really encourage checking them out. As always, links in the episode's description. The Egyptians washed the dust and dirt of the Bayuda from their limbs. They watered their animals, refilled their carrying skins and gourds, and prepared to leave this momentary paradise. It was time now for the harsh yards, a dash across the desert, heading towards the Nile once more. Having rejuvenated themselves at the Jakdul Wells, or Pools of Horus, the Egyptians were now in for the slightly more difficult phase of their journey. It was rather uneventful with no major landmarks, and it was mercifully shorter than the first journey, 115 kilometres instead of 150. But still, it was difficult, east-southeast across the second half of the Bayuda. It was a journey back to the Nile Valley, back towards the River of Life. To the Egyptians, this stretch might have seemed a bit easier in their minds, the desert around them, though, was punishing. Quote, the area multiplies the desolation. There is life only by the Nile. If a man were to leave the river, he might journey westward and find no human habitation, or he might go east and find nothing but sand and sea and sun. In the dragging hours of the night, the desolation will oppress his mind and assail his nerve. That passage comes from a British commentator, writing around 1898, a commentator who travelled with an imperial army into the deep Sudan. This writer offers many comments on the landscape, which was so different from the green fields of his English home. Making his way through sand and dust, a young man named Winston Churchill often found his spirits brought low by the Nubian environment. Again, quote, 
And then the sun sinks all together behind the rocks. The colours fade out of the sky, the flush off the sands, and gradually everything darkens and grows grey, like a man's cheek when he is bleeding to death. We are left sad and sorrowful in the dark, until the stars light up and remind us that there is always something beyond. Melancholy stuff, but I sympathise. In my time at the Jebel Barkal, I often wandered along the edge of the desert around twilight. There is a unique sadness that strikes at that time of the day in that particular environment. If you come from a land of greenery, the vast emptiness of the desert seems to swallow happiness and to pull your heart into its desolate wastes. The moment passes once the stars emerge, but just for a while, everything seems consumed by the sand. It is a strange feeling. Of course, this pull also carries a certain charm, and even long after you leave, you may find yourself yearning for that unique, empty landscape. For the British writer, and perhaps for the Egyptian, the sandy wastes are a compelling place. The Egyptians made their way through the Bayuda. They followed the same pattern as last time, march when cool, sleep when hot, and for about five days they made their laborious way across the sand and the rocks. But they were in good spirits, for the worst was behind them, and up ahead the Nile Valley would soon reappear. On the horizon there were lands that the Egyptians only knew by reputation. They were regions visited by Egyptians in ages past, but now they were long disconnected from the cultures of the north. The Egyptians were coming to a land called Irem. In mid-September, the Egyptians emerged from Bayuda and came to the lush green banks of the Nile River. The hard part of their journey was done, and they had successfully returned to the land of creation and fertility. Here, many hundreds of kilometres from home, they had reached their destination. This land, Irem, would be their stopping point. Irem's exact location is unknown, but the general area is most likely a place on the Nile near modern Atbara. In this area, the Nile is joined by another small river which flows from the east. And that river where it joins the Nile forms a triangle of lush greenery. It is incredibly fertile and well supplied. So as you can imagine, that's the perfect area for a settlement and it is very likely that a community was thriving here very early on in human history. Now, modern archaeology has not turned up a settlement here yet, but researchers have worked hard to uncover what they can of communities and people in this part of the world. From their work, we can say a few things about the people of this most distant land. Firstly, you should dispel any notion of deep Nubia as being savage or uncivilized. From what we can tell, the locals of Irem were enjoying a material lifestyle at least comparable to Egypt's early dynastic period. They were agriculturalists, cultivating different grains and wild plants. The remains of their grinding stones have been discovered, proving that they were harvesting grains and manufacturing them into flour for bread and beer. They were potters, producing some fabulously beautiful pieces, which survive today. Pots from Irem and nearby areas are lovely. There are all sorts of vessels, storage pots, cups, vases and bowls. They are decorated with geometric patterns, carved with delicacy and refinement. 
The styles are varied and all are lovely. Some of these pieces would look quite comfortable on a mantelpiece today. There are tall vases with wide rims which open out at the top like a flower in bloom. Cups with one edge pulled up like a ladle handle. Wide cups, narrow cups, decorated with meanders, with pyramids and with minute polka dots. The works are beautiful and what survives tells us of great energy and artistry going on in these quiet, isolated communities. You can see some images on the website. Essentially, the people of Irem were doing quite well for themselves. That being said, the Egyptians would not have seen them as equals per se. Irem was not, as far as we can tell, unified into a single state. There was no kingdom of Irem surviving in the evidence. We hear of leaders around the area, but these could easily be priests or chieftains or tribal councils speaking as one body. Basically, we have traces of the material culture, but the finer details of the society remain unknown. So Irem, despite the best efforts of archaeologists, is still a mysterious place. Irem was the ultimate destination of Amunhotep's journey. We're not sure why. I mean, it's an impressive journey to take, but what was the goal? What was Pharaoh trying to achieve with this ambitious expedition so far beyond his borders? It's possible that Amunhotep was seeking to repeat the successes of some truly legendary rulers. Way back in the Old Kingdom, around 2200 BCE, kings like Pepi I and Pepi II had dispatched officials into Nubia as explorers. Those men, like Weni the Elder or Hakuf, had penetrated deep into the lands of the Southern Nile, trading for exotic goods to bring to their kings. Well, perhaps Amunhotep was trying to do something similar. The land of Irem, Amunhotep's furthest destination, might be the same area as a land called Yam, which was visited by Hakuf. There's still some half-hearted debate about this, but there's so little evidence for the names of these different regions that many Egyptologists suspect we'll never prove it one way or the other. But it is certainly possible, if Yam was the furthest point Hakuf ever reached, Perhaps Yam and Irem are the same region by slightly different names. It's not a lot to go on, but honestly, this is all we have. In the absence of any written inscriptions from Irem, we'll never know exactly where it was or why Amunhotep visited. For my money, he may simply have wanted a great achievement. What could be greater than journeying so far beyond the border to visit the very horizons of Horus's domain? The Egyptians came to Irem and made contact with the locals. They exchanged goods and received gifts. Amunhotep perhaps commissioned a stealer to record his visit, but if he did, it does not survive today. We know nothing about what the Egyptians did at Irem beyond the basic assumptions. It seems that having reached the area, they now turned their faces north and began their homeward journey. Presumably, they acquired boats at Irem to convey themselves back towards Egypt. Either that, or they retraced their steps across Bayuda. My money is on the boats, since the journey northward seems to have taken much less time than the journey south. If they went by boat, 
the Egyptians would have stopped at a place called Mu. Mu, or modern Kyrgyz, is the southernmost point at which Egyptian texts and records of visitation have been discovered. At Mu, or Kyrgyz, texts record the coming of warriors and officials under the command of kings Tutmos III and Tutmos I. Presumably, Amunhotep would have left a record here as well, but it does not survive. In that case, we'll assume the king stopped for a moment or two and then passed on. He and the troops must have been eager to return home. I can't say that I blame them. The Egyptians set sail from Miu and made their way north. From here, the journey was swift, and we will skip past most of it. Let's fast forward to the day the Egyptians once again reached Napata. The fleet of Pharaoh soon passed their original point of departure. Sailing down the Nile this time, they floated past the village of Napata and the pure mountain of the Jebel Barkal. Perhaps they stopped to make offerings of thanks, for a journey well conducted and ended in safety. Amunhotep gave thanks to his father, Amun of Napata, for yet another demonstration of the gods' divine grace and love. Then he left the Jebel Barkal, but probably not for the last time. Amunhotep III and his army now sailed onward down the River Nile. They came back to the site of their victory over the Nubian Rebellion. Perhaps they watched from the boats at the spectacle of vultures scavenging the battlefield. Now, approximately three to four weeks after that day, the field was nothing but bones and scraps of leather. Soon, it would be entirely gone. From the field of glory, the Egyptians returned to the towns and fortresses which dotted the land of Wawat. This part of Nubia was filled with communities of Egyptian officials and soldiers, overseeing Pharaoh's interests among the Nubians. Going past Sai Island, Uranati, Semna, Aniba, and Buhen, the Egyptian fleet sailed on. They stopped periodically to refresh supplies, but the travel was now light and swift. All danger was behind. Egypt was up ahead. Early in month three of the new year, Amunhotep III and his magnificent fleet reached the island of Elephantine and arrived back at their home. Nubia was conquered, and the voyage was done. Amunhotep commemorated his achievements with a number of stone proclamations. At the island of Sai in Nubia, Canosso near Elephantine, and at the city of Thebes, he commissioned mighty stone stelae to record the wonders that he and his army had performed. None of these stelae provide a straightforward narrative, but they provide scattered references to different places and events, which allow the reconstruction that I have presented here. Thanks to the preservation or copying of these monuments, we can say that the campaign of Regnal Year 5, and the expedition to the south which followed it, may have gone as I have recounted. Amunhotep returned in victory to the city of Thebes. When he arrived, the Nile flood was still in season, and the land rejoiced at the majesty of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep, the great of strength and smiter of his foes. The pharaoh and his warriors had been absent from Egypt for almost eight whole weeks. In that time, the land had been quiet and peaceful. The granaries were full, and work proceeded on temple building, and of course on stone quarrying. 
For the past five years, the king had been slowly implementing a building program of great scale and ambition. Now, with the plunder and spoils of Nubia filling his ships, Amunhotep could begin to expand even further. The king's arrival in Thebes marks the end of this chapter. Next time, we will spend an episode at the Sacred City to see how Amunhotep used the vast treasures he had accumulated. You see, in a remarkable set of records, we learn how the gold of Nubia went towards the funding and creation of some of the grandest monuments ever to grace the city of Thebes. All this on episode 95, coming soon. Music for today's episode was produced by Doug Metzger. If you don't know Doug, you really, really should. Doug Metzger is the host of the fantastic podcast Literature and History. Taking a look at the great works of the literary canon, Doug takes us through the societies, cultures, people, and events which produced some of the greatest works that we know today. On top of that, he also produces wonderful songs about the various topics, and explores them with rich senses of detail and humour. To give him my thanks, I would absolutely love it if you could visit literatureandhistory.com and explore his wonderful, wonderful podcast. Thanks, Doug. <laughs>